So luckily enough, we haven't lost. I don't. I didn't hear of anyone ever dying from pirate radio, but I thought I felt then I got close. The station was raided on a number of occasions because of its audacious approach and the jamming of Radio Nova caused ructions and problems politically because thousands of people went out marching on the streets looking for their radio station back. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello everybody. I am Eric Klein here and we're here to talk about pirate radio in Ireland. Pirate Radio in Ireland the is history. so exciting. The history, because it's a history I think most people in the U.S., North America, and maybe many other places in the world don't know, haven't heard of. It was new to me to learn that there was a richly vibrant scene going on in the 70s I mean, and 80s to, in to hear To hear our guests say it, basically, radio in Ireland was nothing without pirate radio. That pirate radio really was the heart and soul, all of the innovation, all of the cool radio that was happening in Ireland, especially in the 70s and 80s, it sounds like, was happening on pirate radio. And we're talking about it because it's the anniversary of the end of that era of pirate radio, which came to a halt December 31st of 1988 with the passage of new stricter laws. And our guests are doing their best to archive the great sounds and rich history and culture of that time, beginning with their website, pirate.ie. Yeah, really, um, guests today on Radio Survivor that um, are a real of a piece of a lot of the work we've been doing uh, in the last year or so, talking about radio archives. And here, here's another really unique, really important, and really exciting project for Radio Survivor people to know about the, the archiving of Irish pirate radio. And we're on the line to Dublin, Ireland to talk about Irish pirate radio. With us is Brian Green. He's a consultant with Radio.ie and the co-founder of Pirate.ie. Hello, Brian. Hello. And joining you there in Dublin is John Walsh. He's a lecturer in language at the National University of Ireland. He's also a broadcaster at Community Radio Flirt FM in Galway where he presents wireless at Flirt FM, and you're also a co-founder of Pirate.ie. Welcome to the show, John. Hello, Paul. So uh, to kind of set the scene here uh, and, and understanding pirate radio in Ireland, Pirate.ie is an archive, and this is something we get real excited about here at Radio Survivor, an archive of the sounds of pirate radio. And I'll, I'll tell you, prior to learning about your project, I didn't realize that pirate radio, unlicensed radio in Ireland, was so huge in uh, some previous decades. And so what I understand is you've got a archive that goes all the way up right now. You're collecting sounds and presenting sounds going up to December 31st, 1988, which really seems to me not very long ago in the whole scheme of things. Perhaps you could tell us why was there so much pirate radio in Ireland in the 1980s? Like what, what, caused there to be such a huge scene? I suppose the the reason there was so much was because there was a lack of choice on the airwaves. So Ireland grew up with one channel, the state broadcaster from 1926 through to the middle 70s. There there was dominance by, by one channel. And much like what happened in the United Kingdom, there was a rebellion by young people looking for choice and Radio Pirates filled that gap uh, happily and through the early 70s and into the mid-70s, hobby radio stations started to professionalise and broadcast over longer periods of time, beginning on Sundays and then spreading out to all day Sunday, all weekend and then seven days a week and then 24 hours a day and there were hundreds and hundreds across Ireland in every community had a a small little pirate radio station and there were big stations and small stations and community stations and uh, they they filled a gap for a good 11 years from 78 to 88 and they they got out of hand because of loopholes in law they were allowed run free and and uh, they became Mm. very dominant. So there was a loophole in a law you were they were not expressly 
illegal? Oh, they were illegal, Paul. The 1926 Wireless Telegraphy Act was the the problem. The fines were absolutely tiny. The fine for having a transmitter that was unlicensed was £2 and increased eventually to £10, which was an absolutely paltry amount, just a couple of dollars. And uh, also, um, if you could uh, say that your, uh, your, your transmitter was being used to heat uh, a room or to provide light in the room, uh, you didn't have to necessarily, uh, it, you know, it, it didn't have to necessarily broadcast. You could have had a mixing desk in your room that you were doing just to, you know, to basically play music. And, uh, you know, there were all sorts of ways around it. The law was uh, extremely uh, lax and the pirates took advantage of that. And yes, they were fined their two pounds and left the court laughing and um, were back on air again within um, a few days. With the same equipment, because mm. of the secondary uses defence, they were able to get the equipment back after a short period of time. <laughs> I wish... I, I love the, yeah. the defending it Paul as Gellis. a heater. It yeah. is, uh, and, and, and the fact that the fine is like not even a speeding ticket. So are we talking about radio stations that played rock music? Well, I, I think there were four types of pirate radio stations if we take this period uh, as a whole. You had, first of all, the real anoraks, the people who just went on the air for the fun of it, a lot of them on shortwave, playing very pirate-style music, modelling themselves on Radio Caroline and the offshore stations in the UK. Um, you know, an excellent example would be one little station called the Skull and, and Crossbones Radio System, for instance. Absolutely out-and-out pirates. So that was one type. Another type then was more respectable and and professional and um, responsible broadcasters trying to set up a form of community radio. And there were many stations like that that were really quite, you know, uh, trailblazing and uh, leaders in terms of local broadcasting based on communities. Uh, then you had something similar to what we call local radio in Ireland today, where you have countywide stations that were middle of the road, playing uh, an acceptable diet of music for everybody, not, you know, scaring the horses, uh, pretty uh, safe and pretty uh, predictable but providing a good local service all the same and then finally you had what were called the super pirates which were really audacious and brazen businessmen and they invariably were men broadcasting high powered signals into the UK across the border into Northern Ireland and really scaring the authorities those were the ones more than anybody who got raided and uh, were, were shut down from time to time because they were a very serious threat to RTE the state broadcaster so you had big and small you also had political pirates in there, um, pirates supporting political causes, pirates broadcasting in the Irish language, pirates supporting prisoners' rights, you know, issues to do with um, with Republican prisoners, Republican prisoners in an Irish sense rather than in a US sense, so related to politics of Northern Ireland. So, you know, that's a flavour. There was a huge variety, a huge canvas of, of big and small, safe and edgy and then pure big business trying to make a buck. And those uh, super pirates, as you say, uh, were they running basically commercial operations? Absolutely. So the the super pirates arrived in Ireland around 1980, 1981, and they were a a couple of guys from the Radio Caroline ship, Spangles Muldoon, who is other otherwise known as Chris Carey and Robbie Robinson, otherwise known as Robbie Dale. The pair of them arrived into uh, Port Marnock in Dublin, Ireland around 1980 and set up Sunshine Radio. And then, like all good stations, there was an antenna chopped down within 48 hours of it coming on air. Chris Carey got (laughs) got a bit scared, went back to the United Kingdom, but came back six months later and set up Radio Nova. And between them two, they kind of kick-started that wave of super pirates and then an indigenous super pirate came in 85 in the in the name of Q102 and between those three they they really dominated between 1980 and 1987 1988 uh, as super pirates making a lot of money and gathering audiences in excess of 50% of their market share and it's important, and, and, it's worth adding, uh, Paul, I think that, you know, when we say super pirate, you know, it, it's it's absolutely true. Radio Nova at one stage was broadcasting 50 kilowatts on medium wave from Dublin and had an advertising office in Liverpool in the UK and was carrying <laughs> adverts for shops in Liverpool in the north of England, was listened to in the Isle of Man and in the south of Scotland. And, you know, all along the east coast of Ireland, your listeners may not be aware of the geography, but we're talking about, a you know, in Irish terms, a large population 
population area, 50 kilowatt signal is pretty significant. And, um, you know, that, that was a real threat to the authorities. So these were high powered operations with very, very powerful AM transmitters origi- initially and then adding high quality FM at a time when the FM band was virtually empty, when there was nobody on it. They brought people onto FM. They caused oh. a revolution in radio terms. They they professionalised, they Americanized the Irish market. They had jingles from jam jingles in Texas where there was the Radio Nova jingle set. Um, you know, we didn't have jingles like that before on Irish radio. Playing your favourites on a free Radio Nova. Radio Nova. N-O-V-A. Nova. Europe's most powerful FM. We didn't have jingles like that before on Irish radio. They they introduced the clutter-free format based on Kiss FM in LA. Um, hmm. One of the Radio Nova staff was flown to LA and his job was to sit in a jacuzzi all day listening to Kiss FM and to come back to Dublin <laughs> with, uh, with, with ideas about how to make the Radio Nova in Dublin sound like Kiss FM in LA. The Radio Nova huh. had, a, had its own station called Kiss FM in Dublin at one stage, which was based closely what? on the LA model so what ideas did they did they take from kiss fm to ireland well the clutter free what is clutter free clutter free would be the kind of less kind of personality chat from the dj which would have been very popular on our indigenous am stations in the late 70s and early 80s and they would have taken out the the you know the one minute two minute five minute uh links and and chopped it down to you know you know, this is that was, and and we're out of here in the Bay Area high, and let's over to the helicopter and back to another song. So it was like all about short, snappy presentation. And they called they every weather forecast they gave. You know, the weather forecast for the Bay Area, and this was very interesting to us kids growing up in the north side of Dublin, ref, hearing Dublin referred to as the Bay Area. You know, none of nobody here spoke about the Bay Area, but this was <laughs> directly from LA. Or maybe right. from San Francisco. I think it was actually from San Francisco, Berkeley, and Oakland. That bay, perhaps, but it was, it was a, it was a totally new concept for us. But that was the kind of style that they were pushing, and it was enormously successful. And you have to remember, this was a, a listening market that was starved of choice, and you know that they really wanted something new and special. On one occasion. Yeah, on one occasion, pop music, right? pop music uh, throughout. Yeah. That was the the, the diet. Uh, they didn't want to break any songs. It was uh, sure shots that were already charted. They would play on one occasion. They had a competition. They had many competitions, but one was a fifty thousand pound giveaway, and uh, you had to ring in when you heard three songs. And if the third song played, that was played in the promo, uh, you would ring in. The fiftieth caller was going to win. They melted down the phone system in the city of mm. Dublin and the phone system did not come back for about 36 hours. Like they physically melted down wow. the phone system with the competition. And we're talking about pirate radio now in in Dublin. In, in, Ireland. in Ireland, yes. There were all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, I suppose, dramas involving Radio Nova. And that's what happen, happens when you get big personalities coming into a totally unregulated industry. And uh, certainly Chris Carey was a controversial person. There was a very bitter uh, and prolonged strike with journalists at Radio Nova uh, that really damaged the station eventually and, and, and interfered with advertising. Um, you know, the, the, the station uh, was raided on a number of occasions because of its audacious approach and the, the, the very high signals it was, uh, it was you know, it was even was 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 jammed, um, allegedly by RTE. I mean, RTE never admitted to that, but uh, you know, nobody believes that anybody else would have had the capability of jamming Radio Nova. And the jamming of Radio Nova caused ructions and uh, problems politically because thousands of people went out marching on the streets looking for their radio station back. And um, the government realised that maybe this would be a problem for um, for, <laughs> for for votes in the next election. And um, the raids stopped. And after 1983, there were no more raids. But the pirates had another five years pretty much unfettered while the government um, uh, fought, while politicians fought and disagreed over what the best approach would be to, to licensing uh, independent radio in Ireland. So up to 83, I think, was a critical time. But there were a couple of dramatic raids and there was a very dramatic raid in May 1983 Brian wasn't it when Radio Nova closed down very dramatically announced an official close down Tonight at 6 o'clock sees what could be the end of the most exciting period in the history of broadcasting in Ireland when Radio Nova goes off the air 
Despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of people in this country want the right to choose what station they listen to, those in power still deny that right. There are many ways you can show your support. Telephone your TD at Doyle Aaron. Write to your TD. Remember, you don't need to put a stamp on the envelope. And tonight at 6 o'clock, come to the headquarters of Radio Nova at 19 Herbert Street and show your solidarity. If you can't get to Herbert Street, then at 6 o'clock, blow your car horn and blow it long and loud. The answer is in your hands. Don't let us die. All sorts of cheers and how we've enjoyed being on air with you and goodbye for, for forever. And then they come back within a few weeks and it's all a, an elaborate um um, I suppose, publicity stunt, really, for the station. Mm. Extremely clever. I mean, you know, absolute publicity coup. You know, they went down in this blaze of glory only to return and got bigger and bigger again. So, I mean, it was a highly dramatic time in, in radio terms. And that's one of the most, I think, famous and iconic recordings of, of Irish Pirate Radio uh, that we have is the Radio Nova closed down in 1983. John Walsh, you're a co-founder of Pirate.ie, an archive of Irish Pirate Radio online celebrating the, uh, well, not celebrating, but marking the 30th anniversary of the end of Pirate Radio, uh, of a particular era of Pirate Radio there in Ireland that uh, ended on December 31st of 1988. And John, you said something sort of in passing I wanted to circle back to about Radio Nova, one of the largest uh, pirates super broadcasting, pirates. a super pirate broadcasting commercial style radio to, to, it sounds like, millions of people there in the 80s. And you talked about a strike of, with their journalists. And I suddenly said to myself, wait, this pirate station had journalists? Uh, well, well, you see, it's an interesting conundrum, Paul. Um, yes, um, the, the pirate stations, the, the super pirates were, were trying to be very professional. So they did news. Now, they, and they all employed news presenters. And um, Chris Carey, in particular, wanted it to be a professional operation. Sunshine Radio in Port Marnock, the other super pirate, wanted to be professional. However, the, the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, did not want to admit the members into their branches because they were mm. they were working in illegal stations. But, you know, as time went on, the people working in these stations fought for recognition as bona fide journalists and eventually they were let in towards the end of the pirate period, particularly in other less controversial stations around the country. But many stations did news and Radio Nova, you know, there was a certain amount of plagiarism involved, of course. They didn't have the resources of RTE and they weren't prepared to spend that kind of money. So there was a, a certain amount of plagiarism going on, but they made a big deal about their their wire, their press association wire. The main British news agency is called the Press Association. So at the end of every news, they would say, compiled from the wires of the Press Association, this is ABC Network News. And, you know, so they, they were paying for, for news to come from the UK. There, were, there was, there was a, a, you know, a decent attempt at news gathering there, along with some plagiarism as well. And they had, you know, they had talk programmes, they had current affairs programmes, and you know, there was a good attempt going on there to be an alternative to RTE. So yes, it was an illegal operation. Yes, the journalists weren't uh, uh, recognised at first. Yes, there was a vicious strike in Radio Nova. But, you know, some of the bigger stations attempted to do news and did a pretty good job. I started in Pirate Radio doing news myself. Needless to say, all of my news was plagiarised. We weren't paying for Press Association wire. But uh, even the small guys wanted to be professional and to do the to do news. So many stations, big and small, did news. Yes. And and when you say RTE, I'll just circle back so people know that that's the state broadcaster in, in Ireland. And Correct, at this the point, public we're service. talking about in the 1980s in particular, but also the late 70s, that is the broadcaster in Ireland, is the state broadcaster, RTE. And then that's why we have this foment of pirate radio, because there is no other system for licensing a non-state broadcaster. Yes, indeed. So it was just the, the single channel RTE. And then as a response to the AM pirates of the late 1970s, uh, RTE set up uh, it's 40 years ago this May, uh, Radio 2, which is now 2FM, the pop uh, service for, for the younger audience. And uh, they stole the talent from the pirates and then mm. the, the pirates continued on alongside them, grew more talent and outshone them again for another uh, eight years, nine years. 
And that's Brian Green, uh, another co-founder of Pirate.ie, Archive of Pirate Radio, during this fertile period in the 1980s and the 1970s. So we've been spending uh, most of the interview today on Radio Survivor. We've talked about the super pirates. But at the beginning, uh, John and Brian, you uh, taught me for the first time that there were several other kinds of pirate radio in Ireland. So I want to make sure that we get back to those. I want to hear about... uh, you, I mean, you mentioned, I'll just list them off again. You have the super pirates, the ones that were trying to be uh, giant commercial stations or succeeding at being giant commercial stations despite their lack of licensing. Then you had the pirate pirates, right? Uh, people who are on the air uh, just for the fun of it, it sounds like. But it's the other groups that you mentioned, the local pirates. I want to hear more about them. And then you uh, mentioned community radio pirates and uh, political pirates. So take your pick, but teach me. Teach me something I don't know about one of those types of radio stations in Ireland. I'll start, and I've been involved in in many types, but one of the first ones I got involved with was with a shortwave pirate, and it was Radio Valerie International. So this would be about 40 watts on the shortwave. It would broadcast on a Sunday only for about an hour and a half, two hours, and (laughs) it would QSO, so it would have conversations with other stations across Europe on the 48, 49-metre band. Uh, it was very pirate orientated. It had come out of the uh, early seventies, the the AM pirates in in Dublin, and some of the operators would have been involved in Radio Melinda and Radio Dublin. But it, it was continuing on. I joined it in eighty five. It had been going fifteen or sixteen years at this stage, and it, its uh, enthusiasm was the music, and these QSOs, these conversations with other operators, and then the QSL cards that would come in from across Europe for people who had you know wanted to confirm an identification of listening to this small, tiny pirate radio station from Dublin, Ireland, Radio Valerie. And I can add then some information maybe about some of the community stations. Um, if we take even the area that we're, we're, we're in now, there was a North Dublin Community Radio where Brian also worked, which was doing its best to be a kind of a respectable uh, service, very much based on the some of the principles behind community radio that you'd be familiar with in the US. Some of the same principles would underpin the LPFM and LPAM like, movements. Like volu- volunteerism. Correct. Volunteerism and, and democracy. Uh, AMARC. The, the AMARC. They would have signed up to the AMARC Charter on Community Radio and, you know, participation and democratisation and, you know, inclusion and, uh, you know, uh, diversity of of minority groups and giving people, you know, space in the airwaves. So that strong Community Radio ethos was there. Two examples in Dublin were in in the Dublin area, North Dublin Community Radio, and then another station on the south, to the south of Dublin called Bray Local Broadcasting, BLB. We could get it quite clearly here on AM coming across the Bay, the Bay Area. And it was, again, a a real leader in the community radio ethos. And I think we were both then, myself and Brian, involved in a... Brian was one of the founders that set set up another local radio station here in the area where we're both from, that we're talking to you now, called Centre Radio, which was essentially a youth club on air. And we trained over 80 young people in radio between 86 and 88. And um, we were on air at the weekends and I think every evening actually from from February or March 1988 we were on from 5pm to midnight and then all day long at the weekend and we weren't as good maybe at the community radio idea that the you know some of the other longer standing stations were but at the same time we were kind of an access station for the for youth and yeah. you know playing a lot of pop yes and but there were niche shows as well and you know there was a metal show and a punk show and uh, the kind of stuff that you wouldn't hear on the average station and, and you know so those are examples I suppose of some of the smaller community stations that would have been on air and some of those community stations then went on eventually to become licensed when licensing came along so there was a lot of variety there and and you know there was a lot of um, a lot of access I suppose that was the great thing about it that you know radio was literally free not necessarily in a financial sense but for you know free in terms of access and for a relatively small cost you could plug in a low power you know you could put on 25 watts on FM or you know similar amount on AM or whatever and get over a decent area and um there you were, um, giving people, you know, space on the airwaves for free and, uh, and and no restrictions, really, you know. John Walsh and Brian Green, can you tell me a little bit about the political pirates of Irish radio? 
Well, one example of political pirates were, were pirates broadcasting in the Irish language, what you refer to as Gaelic in the US. We call it Irish here. Um, yes. And the um, one of the earlier pirate stations, I actually, I, mean, I teach Irish in the university, so I have both a professional and a anorak interest in this topic. Um, so the, in 1970, a radio station came on air in Connemara, which is the area west of Galway City where Irish is still spoken as the community language. And this radio station came on the air as part of the uh, civil rights movement that was uh, taking place in the district where Irish was spoken at the time, the district called the Gaeltacht. And the Gaeltacht civil rights movement decided that they wanted to set up a radio station. They had been fighting with uh, RTE, with the state broadcaster, for years over their very poor provision for Irish. And right. in 1970, over Easter, over the Easter weekend, they put their own radio station on air in Irish from a caravan uh, and broadcast over uh, a period there. And they came back on the air then later in the year, and that increased the pressure on government to set up an Irish language radio station, which came on the air then eventually in 1972, broadcasting only on AM, first of all, in the Irish-speaking districts, and then eventually in on FM around the country. So that was an early station broadcasting in Irish that was very political in terms of its aims for local government and for supporting local identity of Irish speakers. Other political pirates uh, would happen because of the uh, state ban on Sinn Féin. So there was Section 31 of the Broadcasting Act, which excluded representatives of a political party who were the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And with these guys banned from the airwaves, they would use uh, pirate radio in times of election or in times of protest. So so typically uh, during the H-block protests, when the hunger strikes were happening in 1981, they would have transmitted uh, Radio H-Block and they would have had uh, transmitters on during election times so they could get their message across to their electorate in in places across Ireland, uh, particularly in urban centres like Dublin and Cork and in Belfast, uh, which would be another, another place where they would broadcast illegally. And another example of a political pirate then in my adopted city of Galway, uh, where I'm based, uh, was a station called Radio Pirate Woman, which was set up by the well-known activist Margareta Darcy from her house in the city centre, broadcasting on low power on FM uh, during the 1980s and coming back on several occasions since then. Um, she has recently donated her cassettes to Galway University, ah. where, I work, where I work. That was an, an anarchic radio station. Feminist. Feminist. Yeah. Uh, radical, uh, involving women's groups and uh, all sorts of uh, marginalised groups, but everybody on air was a woman, and she didn't like having men on air, and she mm-hmm, would be, mm-hmm. she'd be, re- she'd be playing cassette tapes of women's radio stations around the world that were of a similar uh, ideology to her, so she was, you know um, carried on until relatively recently, and has recently donated up to, up to 2,000 cassettes to uh, the University in Galway, where I work, thankfully, so I'm looking forward very much to to hearing some of those. I heard her on the air a few times over the years, and it really was an experience. It was she would broadcast from her kitchen, and it was like sitting in the kitchen listening uh, listening um, to her to the stuff. It was it was unlike anything else that you'd ever hear on radio. Really, the you know the absolute polar opposite of the of the big operators, the commercial operators. The sound of that would be a condenser microphone on automatic gain just pulling the sound of the room that everyone was chatting Mm. in and there was very little production values on 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 the technical side but on the content side it was something that you know was worthy of of being pirate radio because often uh, people would pose the question why should i you know break the law to play the beatles or elvis presley or kylie minogue in a less right. radical in a less radical sense, another political pirate radio station was one set up by a political party. Election Radio in nineteen eighty two was set up by Fianna Foyle, one of the main political parties in Ireland. Now, I don't. There was so much political stability at the time. I'm not sure if they were in government at the time or maybe they were in opposition because there were so many changes of government in the early eighties. But here was the largest Irish political party setting up mm-hmm. a radio station which was entirely illegal in order to broadcast its message to 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 for for electoral gain. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, John Walsh, when did community radio stations start getting licensed in Ireland? 
Well, there's an interesting story here, Paul. Um, the new licensing legislation came in uh, in 1988, um, the Radio and Television Act and the new version of the Wireless Telegraphy Act. That put all the pirates off the air, or at least officially. Some of them continued. We can talk about that later if you like. Some people defied the, the new law. We went off the air, myself and Brian, at midnight on New Year's Eve, closing down Centre Radio. Uh, and then local radio came on air the following year. However, the government only prioritised commercial local radio. So a national commercial radio station went on the air that failed after two years. And then over 20 local county-wide radio stations that were commercial went on air. And mm. that was that was a terrible missed opportunity and, and real, really, uh, you know, a, a shame politically, but it reflected the ideology of the government at the time. And it wasn't until the mid-1990s that community radio was licensed. Interestingly, when the man who is now President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, when he became Minister for Communications, Michael D. Higgins, President Higgins, has a very strong understanding of the community radio ethos and he moved to deal with this problem. So there was a gap there of five or six years that was terrible because all of the momentum built up by the really good community stations in the 80s was lost um, because of this act of political cowardice and essentially... Um, prioritizing the big boys who are going to make the money. Well, that sounds uh, awfully familiar, I think, to pretty much anyone who has been involved in community radio anywhere in the world. It's often feeling like fighting for scraps. Yeah, but yeah. it was it was a terrible missed opportunity and there were examples of stations. I mean, if I, I take the example of the station in the, to the south of Dublin in Bray, a, a suburb called Bray, that went on to be licensed as a kind of a commercial operation, but many of the people who were involved in it were from the community radio background and the, the station eventually failed after a year or two. I, I actually worked in the licensed version of it and part of the reason for that was that it was this mismatch. It was, a, you know, essentially a community ethos group who wanted desperately to stay on air, went and got went for and got one of the commercial licenses but it didn't work out for them because they were not really in it to make money they were in it to be a community radio station so that's an example of one lost opportunity I think you know yeah you know I'm I'm trying to picture what it would be like or or you know imagine in my head what it was like tuning around the radio then and and well we'll talk a little bit about the sound but I I'm trying to understand how uh, all these stations organize each other because you know certainly right. always the argument against unlicensed radio is that that what 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 you would end up with is just chaos, right? The, Survival the, the, of the strongest of the, and anarchy yeah. and uh, people you know people cutting each other's lines and and having physical right. and, and, physical and it, altercations and it being over, unlistenable, right? Because yeah. you have five stations all competing for you know ninety two point two on the FM. And I think dial. it's useful though to to. I want you to finish asking your question, yeah. but I just want to remind listeners that we're talking about a radio landscape in Ireland that was dominated by one state broadcaster and then just emptiness, right, filled by pirates, which is, yeah. I'm still wrapping my head around that idea, that that's, that's why this pirate radio in Ireland was, um, was so vital, because it was the only alternative to one state broadcaster. And yeah, so what Paul's asking. Yeah, what, what so it how did they? Like? I mean, how did they organize themselves, or did they organize themselves? I mean, how how was it as a listener? Uh, what was the experience like? Do, was it? Did you have to try hard to try and get the station you wanted? Th- that's a really good question, and I had forgotten how this all worked. And gathering the archive in the last few months, I have heard recordings that were referencing myself. So me as an operator in nineteen eighty. Uh, well, that this actually reflects into the 90s, but, but the same would have applied in the 80s, is that there were particular stations that had a higher pecking order. Not necessarily the biggest and best stations, but the, the longest running stations would have a, a higher pecking order. And they would have a free radio campaign type programme. So this was an F4C, an, an anorak show that would be on on a Sunday. And they would tell the news of what was happening throughout the industry to the industry. Everybody in the industry would listen. And there was a very subtle kind of policing, a moralising of the airwaves to say, Station A should reduce power on frequency because station B has been interfered with at the moment and uh, you know it was subtle because if you didn't adhere to that 
it might escalate into, you know, your car getting burnt out or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it might go slash your tires. And, are those, or, uh... and, and those, those, uh, uh, self-reflective pirate radio programs are available in the archive. Some of them are available online already. And we have some others in the archive and we've another very interesting, we've another very interesting piece in the archive from somebody who didn't in fact respect that pecking order or that kind of subtle hierarchy, uh, somebody calling himself the Phantom, who mm-hmm. um, actually, <laughs> you know, pirate, a, pir- <laughs> a pirate pirate, a, somebody who cycled on a bike with a small dipole sticking out of a rucksack and, uh, you know, broke into the AM signal of um, of one of the, the big uh, pirate stations in Dublin. Or was it, they broke, I think the UHF link was off the air. They broke into the, they broke into the, yeah, they broke into the FM link. Um, so this and, is like a studio to transmitter link or something that they yes, used. Yes, right? correct. Yes, yeah, because yeah. I was thinking an AM broadcast on a bicycle would be no, 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 no. That's that's my that's me getting getting my technology mixed up. No, it broke into the the FM link and you know caused havoc. And broadcast jingles from a rival station across the uh, air on this on this other station. We we have a, an interesting recording of that in the in the, in the archive. Six, nine, four. We're So that was something that caused a little bit of fun in the mid 80s. And of course, not everybody respected these unwritten laws. There were, you know, there, there were cases of, of, as Brian said, of antennas being cut down and, and so on. But generally, I mean, it kind of self-regulated itself in a way. I mean, there were, there were you know, you, you heard, you know, you heard stories about people being asked to move frequencies to facilitate a new, a new operator. Um, you know, sometimes they agreed, sometimes they didn't. Uh, you know, sometimes stations were, were able to reach agreements. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of a lot of stations on the same frequency, for instance, sometimes on AM. There, I know there were several frequencies that were kind of packed. So you, you, you could get a bit of, um, of interference and things. It was, you know, it wasn't done according to any any recognized standard but i you know it wasn't totally anarchic i mean most of the stations hmm. were most of the stations were fairly um uh, responsible it's interesting to me i think anyone who studied uh the development of industry period uh, there's always this this moment of self-regulation and it happens through all sorts of means and often it's self-conscious in that you're self-regulating because you're trying to avoid governmental regulation, right? You're stepping in because uh, you feel like it'll be friendlier if we self-regulate than if we're regulated uh, by, by uh, you know, governmental fiat. And, and, and that seems to be something happening here. I mean, uh, somewhat, uh, it sounds to be somewhat more informal. It's, it doesn't seem as though there was the Irish uh, broadcasters group or, or lobby that got together. I mean, unless unless there was. Was there any sort of formal attempt or was it still more of this kind of informal kind of thing. The National Association of Community Broadcasters, which would have included the North Dublin Community Radio and BLB and maybe 20 or 30 more around the country. There was also the Independent Broadcasters uh, Association, mm. but they, they never succeeded. They, they certainly weren't helpful in bringing about legalisation or formalities uh, upon the industry. Um, they, they did exist. They, they, they lobbied. Ireland was was fairly rocky place politically in the, the early 1980s. So Nothing, right. nothing could happen. Uh, different political groupings would come into power. They would coalesce and they would make all sorts of promises to pirates and their audience. And then nothing would happen. And then they'd be out of power and somebody else would be new with in with more promises. Again, nothing would happen. So there was a period from 80 to 86, 87 that everything was being promised and nothing was happening. And there was an ideological battle between the Labour Party in government uh, and uh, the centre-right party, Fine Gael, over over the philosophy, essentially, with Labour, the Labour Party pushing um, a more uh, kind of left-wing, um, I suppose, community radio type of argument, and then the other party, the larger party, pushing for commercial interests. So that really slowed things down as well. And then in the background, you had RTE, the state broadcaster, getting increasingly paranoid about their audiences being stolen by the super pirates that were getting bigger and bigger. They should do better radio. Yeah. Uh, You just heard the voice of John Walsh, who is one of the co-founders of Pirate.ie. He's also a broadcaster at Community Radio Flirt FM in Galway, Ireland, where he presents Wireless at Flirt FM, a, a monthly show. 
about radio. And as well, we're speaking with Brian Green, who is a consultant with Radio.ie and also a co-founder of Pirate.ie. And we're talking about pirate radio in Ireland, and and this is sort of uh, fomented by the fact that it's the we just had the thirtieth anniversary of the formal end of the first wave of pirate radio in Ireland with the passage of an act that took effect on December 31st, 1988, that made uh, unlicensed radio there much more illegal and much more finable, uh, driving most of these broadcasters off the air. And both John and Brian are putting together this archive, this wonderful online archive featuring the sounds of this time, this what sounds like an incredibly exciting and, and vibrant time in broadcasting yeah, sound, I mean, from the late 70s through the through to the 80s. To hear you tell it today on Radio Survivor, it sounds like anything at all that was happening in radio in Ireland was happening on the pirate airwaves during this time period. Brian, can, can I ask you to share with me, what are some of the, your favorite artifacts here? What are the things that you've been able to post so far that, that make you most excited, that you were most excited to share with the world? Some of them are the the personal ones. So being a little bit lazy, I I gave my boxes of tapes to John about (laughs) six months ago and he digitized them and found some amazing bits and pieces. So while a lot of the start of this interview featured the Super Pirates and Nova and Sunshine and Q102, I I find that they are over featured in people's memories uh, of 30 years ago. And it's the smaller local indigenous stations, people who broadcast from small hotels or from, uh, uh, you know, a little office above uh, shoemakers or something in, in in the main street of a village. The, these stations existed throughout the country and they had identity. They were very small and they had local advertising. So I'd say it, it's, you know, the, the small ones that are less fondly remembered and ones that that are new to me. People have been submitting from around the country and sending in tapes and people got involved. There was there was a tribute station on Pirate Radio this uh, December gone celebrating the, the Pirate era. There was documentaries made by people who were involved in their own stations in their own town and country uh, 30 years ago and, and people have had reunions and got together and remembered and celebrated the time. I'd like to share two examples, uh, Paul and Eric, if you don't mind. Um, the first was from a station called Radio West, which I, I was very interested in uh, AM. Uh, I still am. Uh, I'm hanging on uh, to what's left of it. Unfortunately, it's kind of dying. But I, I was a big AM fan and I, I was fascinated by the fact that I could receive AM stations from outside Dublin. And obviously that was quite easy, even on a simple re- receiver. But there was a station in the middle of Ireland called Radio West, which broadcast 10 kilowatts, which is quite a lot on AM. And that Boomed, mm-hmm. into, boomed into Dublin and they were quite an audacious station they p- played a lot of country music they were influenced by the US country scene and there's a lively Irish country music scene as well with with strong connections with the US and they, they played a lot of that kind of music and they were they, they uh, by 1988 they had expanded they had their 702 kilohertz AM on 10 uh, kilowatts this is West National Radio 3 which was covering, you know, a, a large part of the, the middle of the country and getting across to Dublin and to Galway. And, and they had a series of low-power FMs and they were calling themselves, by the end of 1988, West National Radio 3. So we had RTE Radio <laughs> 1. We had Radio 1 and Radio 2, which were the only licensed stations. And then this pirate in the middle of Ireland was calling itself West National Radio 3. So I think the audacity and, and, the, and the sheer, um, uh, you know, uh, nerve what was incredible and it was a good station and you know I there, there's a few clips from Radio West on the website and one of them is actually a, a promo for advertising in Galway uh, looking for, for ads from Galway businesses and Galway is the city on the west coast of Ireland so this was an example of them you know stretching right across the country now Ireland is tiny in, in, you know in, 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 by comparison with the US but you know this was a, a pretty large operation and they were they were pretty unashamedly going for that so Radio West I liked and another one of my favourite stations Brian will know this and I was so glad that I did actually get to do one or two shows on it was a station in Dublin called Capital Radio which played indie and alternative music and as a uh, as a cure head in the 80s um, I absolutely loved their music and I I I adored Capital Radio and they were they were a really good cutting edge station and you know we don't hear enough of that kind of radio now Mm -hmm. 
version of Bad, which is a great song. Uh, not too trendy these days, not very alternative in fact like you two, though I see that uh, in some of the entries sent in for the poll that is the all-time listeners top 30 in capital to be broadcast tomorrow between 6 and 8 o'clock in the evening or thereabouts. Uh, a lot of people are voting for U2 Live so it's nice to see that they, they at least acknowledge and have some respect for the early U2 stuff, if not the, the stuff that's on Rattle and Home which is probably open to question. Anyway, we are uh, dipping into some of the entries tonight, just taking a look through. They were a really good cutting-edge station and, you know, we don't hear enough of that kind of radio now. Unfortunately, we had a licensed station that played music like that in Dublin that went bankrupt uh, relatively recently. But Capital Radio was a big... um, I was a big fan of Capital Radio. They were very cutting-edge and very, very, very good. I went to their... They had a a weekly nightclub kind of indie night in Dublin that I used to go to. And then Radio West and Mullingar. Those are my two examples that I like. And from the the archive itself, uh, we gathered people in a hotel in Dublin in October uh, last, on October 20th. We had over 100 people who hadn't seen each other. Many had not seen, seen each other for 30 years, some 40 years, and they uh, gave interviews. So we recorded oral evidence, oral history was recorded on the day. And my favourites from that day, and they're at pirate.ie on the archive, are when we interviewed the transmitter men. So there was an interview with Bill Eberl and another one with Jerry O'Reilly. I remember when we set up the one in Donegal, we were testing for a day or two. And I remember uh, walking down the street of Bunkrana that night and there was a queue of about 150 people waiting to get into the studio to apply for jobs because they had nothing. They didn't even... RT was quite bad up there. So, uh, you know, the signal stent was from the Midlands up to the Northwest. So the only thing they had up that part of the country was um, BBC Radio File. So the, the amount of excitement that it generated was unbelievable. We interviewed the transmitter men. So there was an interview with Bill Eberl and another one with Jerry O'Reilly. And these men created the, the most unusual and dangerous transmitters they were <laughs> usually laid out you on your home they, they, they could teach your home but they, they were laid, they were laid out on the floor so they, they, they had no chassis this is pre-chassis radio and this lasted into the mid 80s in, in Ireland so the the transformers were separated oh by space um, for for cooling and <laughs> then the, the the valves were about the only thing that were chassied and they would be 807s and 813s that would be put coupled together to give up to 150, 200, 300, 400 watts of power. And talking to these guys and hearing the interviews and talking about getting electric shocks in DC versus AC and what what it was like and and getting RF shocks off the the top of a, is it an anode on a valve? Did you ever have any um, electrocutions or fires? I I nearly electrocuted myself a couple of times. Some bad shocks, but nothing... Nothing serious. I, I do remember myself working with uh, 807 valve, 600 volts DC, and not getting the usual buzz of when you're being electrocuted. You on AC, you'd get the you get yes, a jump, yep. but the, the the electrocution on DC was so smooth that you were like stuck to it and having to try and fall away one time from being stuck to the anode on the top. You'd ha- I'd, I'd have. Um, a face tester on the top of the anode yes, yeah. and I'd be, I'd be tuning the variable capacitors trying to get as much output power into a light bulb uh, as a dummy load and I remember once getting stuck so badly that I had to make myself fall over to disconnect. So luckily enough, we haven't lost... I, don't, I didn't hear of anyone ever dying from pirate radio but I thought I felt then I got close, you know. No, I used to smell burning flesh occasionally from the, from the aerial... If you had an aerial tuning unit to match the air, the transmitter to the aerial, yeah. and that kind of, if that burnt you, it created a kind of a deep burn, an that, RF burn, an RF burn, yeah. and then you had a smell of burning flesh, which wasn't pleasant. Those were, but they didn't give you the shock that yeah. that the. I, I suppose you were a microwave in your hand in some way. That's you know, right, yeah, with, yeah. With, um, <laughs> Just very thinking about. Yeah, at, at a lower frequency than microwave is currently. <laughs> what it was like, and, and getting RF shocks off the, the, the top of a, is it an anode on a valve? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the antenna arrays that they would throw long wires over electrical cables of the, the, the local electricity supply to get some height into their inverted V antenna. And this was going on, kilowatt stations, and these guys rolled into town 
and went into a farmer's uh, barn or yard and put the station in and then they'd link the station up on FM to the local studio and then the, the station would be on air. And it's these guys who went to so many places and set up so many stations, their stories are fascinating. And I'd also add, there's another very interesting interview that I did uh, at this event with the pirates from County Louth. Now, for your listeners who don't know, County Louth is a county in Ireland on the border with Northern Ireland and is at the centre of the controversy over Brexit at the moment and the UK leaving the EU. But the border is very interesting in pirate history terms as well because there was a far stricter anti-pirate policy in the UK, of which, of course, Northern Ireland is part. And pirate Pirates were really clamped down on north of the border. So many Irish pirates put their transmitters right on the border, beaming across on high power, aiming at the market in Belfast. So I really enjoyed that interview with the Louth pirates, the guys who were on the border. One station had a had a had a little cabin, a porta cabin or a container, which was literally fifty meters um, from the border, uh, looking right across into Northern Ireland with the with the AM antenna. Just behind where, where the presenter was, was sitting. So this was a very audacious uh, way of, of cleaning up on um, on the northern advertising market. And there were several stations along the border. And even today, two of our remaining pirate radio stations are based on the border. Um, there are two AM stations still going strong 30 years later. And, you know, these are all known as border blasters um, in the pirate radio world because they were literally blasting their way across the border. John, Walsh, Brian Green of pirate.ie, the the archive of Irish pirate radio online. Certainly it is growing and I, and you're putting things there all the time. Thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor and telling us much more about this uh, vibrant history of Irish radio. Thank you very much. Can I just finish by saying that we got together in Luxembourg last June at a transnational radio conference and we we were listening to people talking about oral history and the archive that they had for their country's radio broadcasting. And we knew of the rich recordings that had not been recorded and were not available in our own country, in Ireland. So we got back home to, to, to Dublin and to Galway and we decided, do you know what, we have to set up this repository. The best archive that exists is the uh, DX archive. That's in Scotland and in the United Kingdom of Irish Radio. And it's it's here in Ireland with our links with Dublin City University that we want to have a repository that lasts for a long time that has a good rich oral history of what happened in our pirate radio times. Yeah, just to, to echo that Paul and uh, Eric we want this to be a sustainable archive after we're gone we want these sounds to be available to future uh, generations of anoraks and of broadcasters so our aim is in association with one of the universities here Dublin City University. Yes this this is a free and open archive at the moment, but we want it to be made available in perpetuity for future historians so that this rich and exciting period of Irish history isn't lost. Uh, I wanted to ask again about well, this meeting in Luxembourg that you just referenced, Brian. John gave me notice of a very interesting academic assembly of uh, radio historians and academia people who were gathering last June I think they'll they'll meet again in in June this year in Luxembourg mm-hmm. in the University of Luxembourg the professor Andres uh, Fickers put it on and some of his uh, PhD students would have organised this conference and we met up with wonderful people peers people who were just like us who had been studying radio and had uh, worked in radio and had a fondness for it and they came from Russia and Poland and France and Spain and there was people there from the from anarchist movements and there were people there from Sweden and from the United Kingdom and there was three Irish people and we discussed how radio history and transnational radio is being recorded in history and and we obviously focused on our own Irish um 
problem that we we had this illegal past that hasn't been well documented because a, a national archive, our national broadcaster has wonderful archives of themselves, not of right. us. So we felt that, you know, we have to, it's out there. It, it it's, it's on C60, C90 cassettes in people's attics. It still survives. They sound wonderful still. Um, they haven't degraded and we've proof of that and this stuff is available and it it won't be available forever and we're trying to capture it while it's around Yeah I think for the catalyst really for us was Luxembourg the summer school in transnational radio history was the title and uh, focusing on that transnational aspect of radio over the historical period and for us we'd been thinking a lot about the anniversary coming up we'd been thinking about the cassettes in our attics and we were aware of some of the material that was online but also the risks to that uh, and that being preserved and over a series of late night conversations in Luxembourg I think the seeds were were planted for our archive and we came back realising how you know how poorly served this part of Irish radio history how poorly preserved this part of Irish radio history is and um, how really it's up to us to begin to make an attempt to to bring it all together because you know official histories of, of radio broadcasting in Ireland the Broadcasting Authority whenever they have an exhibition uh, you know they really have nothing listed for the years 1978 mm. to 1988 but those were the years that revolutionised Irish radio it was never the same again they were transformed by the pirate operators and um, yet uh, it's very understudied and you know yes of course this is an anorak thing and we all love being anoraks and our transmitter stories and our kilowatts and our you know getting electrocuted by this that and the other but also you know socially and culturally this is really important. I mean, this is social and cultural history that was really popular. And regardless of its illegality, it reflected the desires and the wishes and the loves and the hates of a large part of the Irish population. Actually, just Uh, to to add to that, John and myself, on December 30th, we sat down for an interview and we interviewed each other and we reflected on the archive of these these fresh interviews that we got on October 20th and the other archive stuff that had arrived in. And a story emerges if you have the luxury of listening to the array of interviews. You can pick up little pieces from many of the interviews and it tells a story. And the story we're picking up is, is, is very true. And it was that Ireland was a very... Um, black and white, dull, wet and grey place in 1976, 1977, Mm -hmm. 1978. And the story that gets told is that pirate radio brought colour to that black and white world. It, Mm. It was disco music it was rap music it was pop music and it it was free and available and there was a hunger for it because the national broadcaster didn't provide it and this kind of supply and demand kicked in and where there was demand people would supply and around it there was advertising and commerciality and and it lightened and brightened up uh, the place but it also kind of parallels a cultural revolution as as a country comes out of kind of the catholic uh, dogma of of a religious uh, influenced state and then through the the, the late 70s and into the 80s and there, there's movements for divorce and uh, um, abortion and ver- various cultural social changes mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, Irish radio was there, uh, and it was part of it. It it isn't significantly, you know, the 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 agent that's that's pushing, but it's there with the people as this change happens. That's right. It wasn't it wasn't the cause of change, but it was part of that change that was happening, and part of this change from from black and white to colour. You know, Ireland was very depressed economically. It was a very conservative country uh, at this time. The pirates were definitely part of giving people space and voices, and you know, even something as you know, a lot of gay people worked in pirate radio and were 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 tolerated and were 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 included in that. And you know, it wasn't a very it wasn't a happy country to be gay in uh, in the nineteen eighties. So mm-hmm. um, it was all part of that change. And, you know, so it's not just a mere Anorak thing. Yes, there's stuff on, on our interviews that that's that, that's absolute gold for Anoraks and, you know, transmitters being built and antenna being constructed and so on. But there's real broad uh, and deep uh, social and cultural history there as well that's reflected by the pirate radio uh, scene uh, at the time. And our, our, our archive is very incomplete. Um, you know, we only have a fraction of the material that's available. We're, we're, we're not claiming to be definitive. What we're, right. what, we're, what we're aiming to do is to 
through partnerships is to bring together what there is, our own material and others. Anybody who's willing to donate, info at pirate.ie is our address. If anybody, even in the US, of an Irish uh, of Irish extraction or from Ireland has material, we'd love to hear from you. Um, mm-hmm. We want to bring together what there is and preserve it so that it's not at the risk of being being taken down by SoundCloud or MixCloud, that it can be preserved into the future. That's our ultimate aim and as much of it as, is bo- as possible. Brian Green and John Walsh of Pirate.ie, the website where Pirate Radio is being archived. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Radio Survivor listeners, I have to jump in here right on the podcast to let you know that this interview that we recorded on Irish Pirate Radio, um, we can only air two-thirds of the full content. And the other third is also great. It's just as good as the first two-thirds. I was forced, as I often am, uh, to focus in in the edit. But uh, it would be my pleasure to share with you the rest of the material up to and including more, <laughs> more deep radio anorak uh, content, radio nerd content. Uh, Paul Riesmandel asked several follow-up questions. <laughs> about about um radio frequency engineering uh, i don't even know and uh those were fun but of course uh straight to the cutting room floor so that we could get the show on the air at 59 minutes and, and i want to sh- you can you can check out all that material as well as um uh discussing the fact that we didn't know what anorak the word anorak was until that recording. We, 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 I, I didn't want to interrupt during the flow of the interview to say, wait, 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 tell me what anorak is. Because it was clear it means nerd. Um, otaku is the word that I know. That's, that's Japanese. Uh, radio anorak. And so all of that material is available in a, a version of the podcast that's 88 minutes long uh, and uh, available for Patreons. Of supporters of our podcast on the Patreon website, you can learn more at patreon.com slash radio survivor. And that's all I have to say to you. I can let you now hear the introduction. No, the outro as it was recorded. Guys, here's the thing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's quite late at night right now and I'm sleepy and I'm recording this at the end of a long day of editing this episode. That's what I worked on today. Uh, Lots of good stuff, lots of sound-rich material. I'm bragging that I worked hard on this labor of love radio station. And if you'd like to hear the long version, uh, the the 88-minute long version of the interview as opposed to the the 52-minute long version you just heard, uh, you can you can find out more at our Patreon page. So nice to dip a toe into a little bit of history of Irish pirate radio. And just radio. a toe, there is there is such a rich vein there. It is a it is an enormous gushing river, and we've we've just dipped in a toe. Yeah, and to find out, there's more. There's more on the European continent for Radio Survivor to explore. Of course, there is. There's so much here. We're Stay have our work cut we'll out for us. Yeah. Uh, if you have any comments about today's program or any questions, drop us a line. Send them to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And this is a listener and reader supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can help us do what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And we certainly appreciate you spending another hour with us. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>